0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we are happy to have one of our old Huffington Post colleagues on the show for the first time, author and journalist Mark Lamont Hill. Mark has a new book out called Nobody, in which he traces America's state-sanctioned war on its most vulnerable citizens, from Ferguson, Missouri, to Flint, Michigan, and beyond. He joins us to talk about how much America has learned about itself since Michael Brown was killed, and whether or not forces are emerging that might achieve a more perfect union. Meanwhile, the 2016 Summer Games in Rio de Janeiro have kicked off, and if you're enjoying watching the competition from the comforts of your own home, you may want to think about doing everything you can to prevent where you live from becoming a host city for the Olympic Games, because it's becoming increasingly clear that when the Olympics come to town, people lose their homes. Maybe the Olympics are just bad for us. Finally, we are marking a sad chapter in history this week the two year anniversary of the genocide of the Yazidi people in Iraq at the hands of ISIS death cultists. We're joined by the Kurdistan Regional Government's representative to the United States, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, to find out how the Yazidi community is rebuilding itself and whether or not any progress against ISIS has been made since then. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. We'll have all of this, plus we'll try to explain what it was that Donald Trump thought he was doing on the campaign trail this week. But here's what happened first. Hello, America and the rest of the world watching America for signs that we are slowly killing ourselves. Uh, Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest of everything that's political and nonsensical in our world. I'm Jason Lincoln's host of, well, the, the editor of Eat the Press. I'm joined, as always, by my lovely people, Arthur Delaney. Hey. Hey, Arthur. It's good to see you. Thanks. And Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. Welcome back, Zach Carter.
2: I know. I'm in, in Washington, not Philadelphia this time.
1: Yeah, that's so. right. So we're all here and we've had like a little bit of time to digest the uh, conventions. And now the the race moves to its new stage less than 100 days before Election Day. And uh, well, there's a little bit of an open question now if if maybe Donald Trump actually doesn't want to be president.
2: He's had quite a week um, saying things you know, you're used to Donald Trump saying crazy things that are not true. Uh, but, I mean, he has asked the Russian government to hack <laughs> Democrats. That's old.
3: What he, what's your favorite
2: thing from this week? Uh, I mean, this relentless and pointless attack on the family of Khazir Khan, I, I just, I, I can't... I can't believe that it just keeps it's going. Inf-
1: it's 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 not to be fathomed. The the way he has like come out against party leaders like Kelly Ayotte, like Paul Ryan, like John McCain, has suggested that he would not uh, not support their re-election bids and and support their primary opponents, which is which is really nuts. But can I tell you that here's just something that a lot of people maybe didn't miss. Jordan Sargent from Gawker uh, wrote about how uh, Donald Trump did a campaign appearance in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is very close to here. Uh, And I, I grew up near Loudoun County. Loudoun County right now is a very, very wealthy county in America. And it's gotten really rich on the fact that, uh, government and military contractors and their families all live in Loudoun County. It's like white collar to the core. It's very wealthy. It's McMansionville. All those people are doing great. And Donald shows up and, as as Sergeant put it, acted as if Loudoun County was a desiccated rust belt uh, uh, You know Part of America and was like Your economy is doing terrible here Your factories are closing He went on to cite a number of factories that were not In Loudoun County one of which wasn't even In Virginia <laughs> <laughs> That it closed One that was near Loudoun County did close But it closed eight years prior to Donald Trump Showing up to complain about it Yeah, And the gathered people Were completely nonplussed Because these are all like polo wearing Preppy guys who are like Living in giant houses on tiny postage stamp lots. Two all kids next-
2: and a golden retriever. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and to be told by the Republican candidate that they're doing lousy, and that they should be
3: factoring in factory closures that took place miles from their homes was just like insane. Well, the the entire premise of the Trump campaign is that America is in shambles and only he can fix it. So even and a lot of his supporters are doing fine, but you know they're with that message.
2: Yeah, I, I just think that's a message that would have made sense in in southwestern Virginia, in coal country, uh, a lot more so than it does so in sort of the northern Virginia exurbs of, of Washington D.C. It's, sure. it, it's a message
3: that would have made sense in a detective comic book from the nineteen eighties. I, I mean,
2: you know, the, it's not the case that there aren't communities that are in real trouble whose who who who's Trump with whom Trump's message resonates as the most awkward. Yeah, sentence that's, ever said. that's the amazing yeah. thing. That, that, that is that is true. But it's also not the case that these people that, that in order to win those people over, you need to go around attacking members of your own party. Or the family of a dead war hero. It just doesn't—you don't need to do that. And it doesn't effectively get your message across that you're going to help these communities. It just shows them that
3: you're an asshole. The Gold Star (laughs) families were the most offensive thing where, you know, he's impugning these people who lost their son, who served this country. But I think the the thing that uh, was craziest that contributed to a growing uh, commentary on Donald Trump's sanity— This week was his continued bashing of fire marshals Uh, is amazing, right? People who don't hold partisan positions, right? uh, Who work with the Trump campaign in advance to set a limit on the number of people who can come into a hotel ballroom or whatever. So when the limit gets reached because the Trump campaign itself over distributed tickets, Trump then singles out the fire marshal and says it's a conspiracy of Democratic fire marshals to suppress the size of his crowds.
1: I had no idea that fire marshals were an important Democratic Party constituency. <laughs>
3: They're not. I mean, one of the, <laughs> the fire marshal he criticized in big Ohio... Big fire marshal.
1: Big fire safety. Yeah, but, well, the, well, in
3: fact, the fire marshal he criticized in Ohio was a Republican. So he's done this... And didn't the fire marshal actually rescue him from a stuck elevator right before he criticized in, him? In Colorado on Friday, yeah. So So three times... In a week, he did this. It continued into this week, and it's just so pointless. It's campaign shtick. It's like that's his way of saying, "Oh, I'm so popular; not all of you could fit in here." The guy will let you in. He you can know? do that without attacking the guy. And sure, he's like a he can be funny, but he doesn't do it like it's a joke. If or he doesn't it's funny. attack the guy, there's no dominance play involved. There always has to
1: be a dominance play involved with Donald Trump. That's You're right. Yeah, Josh You're- Marshall has uh, like picked up on quite quite readily and is really quick to articulate whenever he does it. It's a dominance play. There's no like Donald Trump can't have just like a peaceable
3: kingdom. Right. Like in that, in that interview, that Loudoun County, uh, in an interview around that time, he also said, uh, he was asked about Paul Ryan and he said, are you asking me for a quote on Paul Ryan? And the course, yeah, we're, I'm interviewing you right now. I want (laughs) to, everything you say is a quote. And he said, I'm just not there yet. He had this line ready Because that's what Paul Ryan had said a while ago about not being ready to support Trump. So it's a grudge he's held this whole time. And he's just pointlessly rubbing Paul Ryan's face in it now. And
2: it's amazing because after all of this horrible shit that Trump has done attacking veterans, uh, (laughs) attacking fire marshals, because Paul Ryan and the other Republicans that Trump insulted did not disavow him during those comments once trump then <laughs> attacks them personally it makes them look really small if they if they if, they, if, they, if that's the last straw oh oh you're going to attack war heroes yeah okay th- fine but yo you're not going to support my re-election no that's it
1: i'm out of here this is washington <laughs> man that was always going to be the last straw everything's acceptable as long as there's an opportunity uh for a shameless opportunist a shameless opportunist to, to exploit when you When you fuck with Paul Ryan's money, though. So none of these guys are going to withdraw their
3: endorsements now, as some people seem to think might happen. Donald Trump's not going to withdraw from the election, as has also been talked about. But he is feathering the bed for the most favorable loss by saying the election is rigged. That's another weird thing he keeps saying. He keeps denigrating the integrity of of our democratic process. It comes right
1: out of the GOP playbook. I mean, I think that that's something that has always been said, that there's... there's, No, it's not. That's why the constant focus from the GOP is on voter fraud and, like, excluding people
3: from... That's the opposite. That's an effort to actually suppress voting. I know. We're talking about the integrity of the votes, the, the system itself, after... Yes, well voting the argument the
1: argument for all these photo ID laws is that the, there's no
3: integrity in the voting system. Oh, but it's made so half heartedly because course. it's such a naked effort to to keep black people from voting. Right, yeah, of course. course. I and mean, that's everyone knows that's all it is. Yep. And and so Donald Trump is saying the the election's rigged, he's got his buddy Roger Stone saying this like every day yeah. on InfoWars. Yeah. I <laughs> think because they rightfully anticipate that he won't win and he'll wanna be able to well, complain about now. It.
1: like post convention Clinton has posted some gaudy numbers in polls she's up by 10 in a couple uh polls including the Fox News poll which you wouldn't ordinarily think would be you know it probably has probably still has a bit of a Republican House effect to it but um uh, at the same time still rather close in some important swing states even in spite of all of this in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida uh, if you're the Trump campaign, you still figure you have a shot, provided you campaign there. Um,
2: and, and note the the down ballot poll numbers for people in, in Senate races, right? Like in particularly in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, which are some which are which are some seats that Democrats really want to pick up if they're if they have any chance of taking back the Senate. Uh, you see people like Pat Toomey and Ron Johnson actually doing quite well, pulling far ahead of Trump. So it's not clear that uh, even if if Clinton can tweak out a victory in those states... Um, that it will have the, the sort of like wave election type uh, impact that Democrats are hoping
1: for. So I have one more question. Um, one of the things we've talked about on the show before, we've had um, uh, Thomas Frank on to talk about it, is that uh, under with Hillary Clinton as your as your titular party head and your and your presidential nominee, there's always been this kind of like suffocating focus on the needs of the professional class uh, versus the needs of the working class and the middle class. Uh, and you know, post convention we see. A strategic choice by Clinton to go out on the hustings with the very, very richest people in the world uh, to to campaign on her behalf and say Donald Trump is a bad billionaire. We see Mike like Warren Buffett, the DNC. Yeah. Warren Buffett yep. did a campaign appearance. Mark Cuban did a campaign appearance, uh, and, and and most recently Meg Whit- Whitman has has said Former she Republican, will yeah. yeah she'll support Clinton. When you were at the convention in Philadelphia, do you did you find that there was an intense, too intense focus on professional class and, and, and affluent voters. Did they ever get to really, uh, forming a message for people who are not just part of this democratic constituency? That's always been doing well in the economy and it's always making it.
2: I was really fascinated by the number of attacks on Trump, uh, for making his clothing line in other countries. Um, that is not explicitly a disavowal of of TPP, a uh, you know, big trade deal that's that's currently in the works, um, but it it was a populist play. Um, it, it was not. There were there were not a whole lot of. Um, there just weren't people in the crowd who were, like, really, really jazzed by, like, Mike Bloomberg's speech that he gave at the convention. I rather think that they,
1: speech was projected over that crowd to yeah, centrist at home. The,
2: the delegates at the convention, the, even the the, the, the diehard Clinton-supporting delegates, were not people who were out there thundering to, like, get more Romney voters in here. Um, so the convention was not – was which it did not feel like it was orchestrated or or an attempt to play – Um, To to that audience, really, even even in the later days of the convention, when you know, when they did have Mike Bloomberg come on stage and effectively say that Trump is bad at being a billionaire. Um, I I think Clinton's message so far since the convention is over has largely been to shut up and let Donald Trump light himself on fire in front of everybody, Um, which means she's capable of being super vague about about whether what I thought was quite a very progressive speech that she made at, 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 on the convention night, the last night of the convention. Um, she can be she can just be sort of vague about whether she's going to follow through on that stuff for a while, because what are you going to do? We've got cable news showing Donald Trump doing the dumbest, meanest things constantly.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I think there's like just sort of maybe an inherent risk about appearing too many times on the stage with people like Warren Buffett. I understand the play. I understand the play, but I also understand that this campaign at some point has got to start relating to people, especially in the swing states I mentioned. All right, Zach Arthur, thanks for talking about this. We have a really nice show, so please stick around. There'll be more good show, and we want you to hear it. More good show. More good show. More good show. We will be right back.
3: And we're back. This is Arthur DeLaney. I'm joined by Jason Lincolns. Hey. And we have a very special guest, Mark Lamont Hill. He's a professor at Morehouse College, an award-winning journalist and author, a CNN commentator and a host on BET and VH1, and a former Huffington Post colleague, the best Huffington Post colleague. And he's got a new book called oh. a new book called Nobody: Casualties of America's War on the vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Mark, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I miss you guys. I miss talking to you guys every morning at HuffPost, man. That was that was the best experience. Even Zach Carter.
3: <laughs> we know. For those who don't know, <laughs> Mark is referring to HuffPost Live, where we were all uh, we would all be Mark's guest. Yes, and and be schooled on the news of the day. It was great. It was great. It was I'm
1: sure I'm sure you look back on it Mark, as like the pinnacle of your journalism career.
4: So oh, that's exactly right. It it's that's exactly <laughs> how I look at it. You you hit the deal right on the head.
3: Yeah. Tell us about Nobody.
4: A Nobody. Nobody. It's it's you know it's a project I've been working on. I actually started it right as I was uh at Huffington Post and you know when when we were at Huff Post and we were Uh, covering everything that happened in Ferguson in 2014 of August. You know, I went down there, and I spent a lot of time on the ground, and I decided that I wanted to tell a deeper story about what happened in Ferguson because I realized that the story of Mike Brown wasn't just a story of uh, Darren Wilson shooting him. It was a story of a kid, like many Ferguson residents, who had been, you know, uh, who, whose well-being had been compromised by a school district in Norm- Normandy School District, which was, you know, one of the worst in the country. And, you know, public housing, which had really collapsed in St. Louis uh, with pruitt Igo causing people to move to Ferguson. It was about Emerson Electric, the, factories, uh, the factory there that, that closed down, leaving people basically jobless. All of those things made Mike Brown's life hard much before he met. Darren Wilson, and I wanted to sort of think through that. What, what does it mean for a town of twenty thousand people to have sixteen thousand out of the twenty thousand be uh, have warrants open, and, and to have tickets and, and and other sort of civic penalties, such that the the town's the town business is not manufacturing, the town business is basically ticketing people. Yeah. And so all of those things help contribute to why he's on Canfield Green at that moment where where Darren Wilson shoots him. So I wanted to tell that story, and then lastly, you know as I was writing the proposal for the book and I was beginning to write this book we were right back in New York covering Eric Garner and you know the non-indictment of Daniel Pantaleo next thing you know we're in Baltimore talking about Freddie Gray and Hempstead with Sandra Bland and before I knew it I realized that this wasn't just a story about one city that had kind of rendered a kid disposable it was about an entire country Whose fundamental infrastructure, at the level of of uh, of housing and education in the criminal justice system, uh, was was really was really undermining everyone's sense of prosperity. This very idea of democracy is compromised by the system itself, and so I wanted to tell that story.
3: Yeah, the book you bring a great historical sweep to the the story of what happened to Michael Brown, and, and I want to talk about that in the first chapter. You draw this amazing contrast between. Two of the highest profile incidents of the last eight years. There's uh, the killing of Michael Brown by white police officer Darren Wilson. Um, like six years earlier, there's the Obama Beer Summit with Henry Louis Gates and the white cop who'd arrested him for trying to open the front door to his own house. Tell us about th- those two things and how you've put them together in your book, Nobody.
4: You know, I think the contrast is so significant because you know, it, part of what it means to be nobody is to be rendered disposable, and at at without doubt, without a doubt, you know, race is a key piece of this, right? Black people tend to be rendered more disposable than than others, and their white counterparts, to be sure. You know, it's hard to imagine uh, the tragedy in Flint with lead poisoning happening in in Grosse Pointe, Michigan. Yeah. Uh, but, then on, but then there's also this question of class and the way in which our understandings of class and how it's performed also shapes how people respond to us. So, you know, it, when, 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 uh, when, uh, when, when Henry Louis Gates gets stopped by the police and the president himself says that the police behaved stupidly. This is a guy who never intervenes and makes commentary about, against the police. This is someone who at this point had never really made any significant racial commentary since the, uh, since, since the, uh, the, what I call the Philadelphia compromise speech where he's <laughs> about, uh, Jeremiah Wright prior to being elected.
3: The, the, the supposedly wonderful, famous speech.
4: Right. And, exactly. It, which was bizarre yeah. at best. <laughs> Yeah, and he's not speaking out against you know the killers of Sean Bell, where he said, well, let's respect the jury's decision. It's not the kind of you know speech against uh, Trayvon Martin being killed. It's a speech against his homie from Harvard, you know. And I love Henry Louis Gates, and I think he's an extraordinary uh, scholar, an extraordinary person. But it's interesting that when it comes to him, this is a, a sense of this shouldn't happen here. Uh, when it comes to him, it's a sense that this that, that the wrong person was stopped, that this type of behavior shouldn't be visited upon someone who is a, a co-mingler with white society, someone with fancy awards and fancy degrees and who comports himself in a certain way. But the truth is that this type of behavior shouldn't happen anywhere. But when it's a C.C. McDonald or a Sandra Bland or a, a Katherine Johnson or a Maya Hall, we, we don't have that same response. If it's a Rakia Boyd, we don't have that response and so we, and so for me, the the, the class difference here is significant, in the and the way we respond to it, because the, the vulnerable are, are again aren't just black people; it's people who are marked as other, and people who aren't seen as deserving of access to democracy, people who have been erased from the social contract, uh, people who uh, don't fit in the public imagination when we talk about citizenship. Those are the people who we have to be very careful about, particularly in the era of Trump. Right. Where, yeah. where certain people are being erased very, very literally from the social contract.
1: Uh, so I want to you, you also write quite a bit about Freddie Gray, the Freddie Gray case and the way the Freddie Gray case is prosecuted. You raise some interesting concerns about it that I think maybe speak to the whole way that figures who achieve a sort of elite status get to signal and behave versus those who don't. Um, by now, of course, the news is that, you know, the the people who are originally uh, indicted for uh, various crimes related to Freddie Gray's death are all going to walk. <clears throat> in your book, um, you kind of go over that moment where Marilyn Mosby first uh, took to the microphone to explain uh, what she was going to do in response to the case. It was something that I think most observers who were were either inclined to uh, support uh Gray's family, uh, the black community in Baltimore, looked upon quite favorably. But you had misgivings. Could you could you explain some of those?
4: Yeah, you know it's it's funny. Like, and we were all there at the presser, or we watched the presser when when Marilyn Mosby stood up. None of us expected her to say she was going to prosecute all six of them that quickly. And you know it was a, it was just a, an, an impressive moment. She became like a hero in Black America overnight. You know, and everyone <laughs> was applauding her, and she was she had memes, and we were all excited about it. And to be honest, I'm not I, I'm not as critical of Marilyn Mosby per se as I am of a system that allowed that to take place in the way that it did. I think what Marilyn Mosby did was, was principled. I think she was courageous, and I think she had the best of intentions. I mean, we could debate about whether or not people were overcharged or whether or not maybe two of the cops should not have been charged at all. I mean, these are these are kind of in-the-weeds debates that, that experts can have. Uh, but I think the more significant question here is not whether or not Marilyn Mosby prosecuted these cops, because I think, again, I think she should have indicted them and that they should have been prosecuted. Um, I think the question, though, is what does it mean for prosecutors at this moment in history to have this kind of unilateral power? Uh, even if she used it properly this time, that's not the—most the, Most people who who are on the business end of prosecutorial power are black, and they're not, and it's not to get justice for them. So I think that you know, there's a bigger issue here, 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 you know, here, you know, you know. We live in a moment now where uh, most cases are not decided through trials, they're decided through pleas. Yeah. And, be- and because of mandatory minimum sentencing, the prosecutor now has much more power than the judge, because the determination can't be made by a judge to offer leniency, so it, be- it really comes down to what the prosecutor charges. So now you prosec- have a prosecutor, so we haven't-, we haven't gotten rid of the arbitrary and capricious, nat- capricious nature of-, of-, of sentencing. We've just relocated it from a judge to a-, to, a, uh, to a prosecutor, which is very dangerous when you don't have the kind of adversarial system between prosecutors. And public defender that we used to have, because the public defenders themselves are now kind of co-opted by the same system. Not because they're bad people, just like the prosecutors aren't bad people, but because the system itself is so dysfunctional. So you, so you have you know pay your contract attorneys, for example, public defenders who are overworked so much that they have to outsource the labor to private lawyers who now get a contract to represent all these people. And if you get a flat fee to represent everybody, the money's not in good representation. The money's in getting through as many cases as possible. So the market market logic prevails.
3: Mark Lamont Hill, I think this gets to a broader point that you make in your book, uh, which some people might mistakenly think is a book about black America. Uh, You talk about How about intersectionality and how these are much broader problems than ones that only affect African-Americans?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this book is a problem. This book is as much about the crisis of white supremacy as it is the crisis of capitalism. You know, we right now live in a neoliberal moment where the market becomes the ultimate decider, to use George Bush's language, of what's good and what's bad. The the, the notions of deregulation and austerity and the quote unquote free market, which we know obviously is the fair market, uh, all of these things lead to a certain kind of economic reality where the private good trumps the public interest. And then it's not just an economic issue or a material issue. It's also a cultural issue. So what neoliberalism breeds is a sense of individualism, a sense of I. It's, it's the individual I over the collective we. And as a result, we end up with these very, very perverted social, social institutions, right? Private, public education becomes privatized. Policing becomes privatized. Military can become privatized. Uh, the public defender system becomes privatized all of these ent- entities become privatized and therefore less regulated that's how you end up with an emergency manager in michigan yeah. who's overseeing this as opposed to an actual politician who's accountable to the people you have a you have it in the name of efficiency you have a public defi- you have a a, a a system of please uh, as opposed to trials in the court system, which leads to a lack of access to the public of, of of what's true and what's good. Everything is privatized. And so, again, all the market logic prevails. And this doesn't just compromise the well-being of black people, although we're disproportionately affected by this. It, it compromises the life chances and prosperity of white citizens. One at the level of political organizing, right? They, you know, you have a, you have a figure who can come in. Let's say hypothetical. Hypothetically, there's a demagogue-like presidential figure who emerges, who convinces white voters to vote against their own interests by convincing them that the boogeyman is not the economic situation that they're facing, but that it's some immigrant or some Muslim or some Arab who's coming and and, and destroying the America that we have, and we need to long for the nostalgic days of America of America of an America in that never existed, right? I mean, imagine if that happened in America. That's possible. And and, it's entirely plausible. And I I think it happens because we're so confused about what the source of our problems are that we turn on each other as opposed to turning to each other and organizing together.
3: Mark Lamont Hill, I think we're a nation founded on nobler ideals than that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you, sir. And I want to find that America, sir. I want to make it great again.
1: So much of your book really has to do with agency. And I think that you know as someone who's um really studied the black, plight of black america you you you're very skillful at demonstrating the extent to which erasure is so possible when big meritocratic forces like capitalism like white supremacy are brought to bear on a vulnerable population and and i think there's a trace you make through um black codes to redlining to emergency management in flint uh that's pretty compelling um do you think that uh, in the end, what we're seeing emerging here on the streets of of America is perhaps a, a, a defiant and maybe lasting assertion of black agency now?
4: You know, I, I think there's at every moment, and I say this at the end of the book, as you know, that at every moment where there's been... Uh, oppression has been resistance there's never been a moment where we have been re- called nobody by the state where we haven't asserted our somebodyness whether it's the journal truth saying ain't I a woman uh you know speaking back to white feminism that white feminism white liberal feminism that that uh that dehumanized them you know uh, you know, whether it's uh you know, Jesse Jackson in the seventies saying I am somebody, whether it's uh, I the I am a man signs of the nineteen sixties, the Alcatraz uh prisoners saying we are men, or right now people asserting that Black Lives Matter. We've always offered that kind of resistance. And I think this moment is breeding yet another iteration of that. Uh whether it's lasting or not I think is a challenge. I think there are forces that often seduce us into thinking that the progress that we've achieved make these types of uh resistance movements less less necessary you know, the, the advances of the 1960s and 1970s, you know, you get past, uh, you know, public accommodations of 64 or, or voting rights of 65. And, you know, there's almost like a Faustian bargain that's made between the black middle class and the poor, where suddenly the black middle class have access to Harvard and Yale and, you know, access to, to, to nice institutions and, and good neighborhoods. And the black poor get, get really thrown under the proverbial bus. This is a, a kind of moment that happens. And then we reignite our, our radical energies, you know, at different moments. I think this is our generation's radical moment. I think August ninth, 2014, was the moment where, once again, that defiance that you talk about um, gets gets spotlighted again, where the resistance becomes more concentrated. Uh, I hope that it's long-lasting. I hope that it lasts forever, or at least until we can produce a different kind of social reality. But there's always a chance that, once again, we'll get comfortable, that some concessions will be made, that we'll get a nice liberal president like a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama who will make us think that we've made significant progress because we have a new driver, even though the bus is going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So what I would encourage us to do is continue to think and continue to read and continue to organize and continue to struggle so that we not only uh, have a moment of resistance, but we have a movement of resistance that doesn't stop.
3: Mark Lamont Hill, declining the Beer Summit invitation. Thank you so much for being with us. The book is called Nobody... Casualties of America's yeah. War on the Vulnerable from Ferguson it's great. to Flint
4: and beyond. It's a it's great, great book. I we read actually, it yesterday. We read it. <sighs>
1: yeah, and and, and and Mark, we miss you so much, and it's so good to talk to you.
4: I miss you guys, and I have a beer summit with you guys, and I'm going to come to D.C. and let's just get drunk.
1: Yes. It's a date, man. It's a date. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, thanks so much. And we're back. Folks, by the time you hear this podcast, the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, will have kicked off. And, uh so will a lot of people been kicked off of the land they own and the homes they live in. And here to talk about that, we have Zach Carter. Hi. And our man in the sports world of misery, (laughs) Travis Waldron.
5: Can I change that to my official title? Yes.
1: Yeah. It should be on your card. The sports world of misery with Travis Waldron. It's very, it's very terrible. Um, so we've had, Travis, you've been on the show a bunch of times talking about the Olympics. Um, which uh, I, I gather you do not have a particularly fond opinion of. Um, but one of the things that uh, you've been more laser focused on now is how the Olympics as an institution, maybe not just in Brazil, but, but elsewhere has uh, really disproportionately uh, impacted poor homeowners in host cities.
5: Yeah, that's correct. And you know, there's a, there's a community in Rio de Janeiro called Via Todromo that has, has garnered a lot of international focus because it has largely been destroyed to make way for the Olympics. It's it's less than a mile from the Olympic Park in Rio. It's it's very close to a lot of the uh, major venues. And at first, they said they were going to let them stay. Uh, and then they, they came back in the years before the Games and said, hold on, we need this area for access roads to the Olympic venues, and you have to go. Uh, there were more than... I think 650 families there and and they finally struck a deal uh, earlier this summer that 25 are going to be able to remain. So, you know, more than 90 percent of those families have been relocated and most of them against their will. Some of them have received compensation and, you know, some of them left voluntarily because they they saw the writing on the wall. But the majority of them wanted to stay. Uh, And Atodromo is a favela, so it's a low income neighborhood that, you know, those are... Uh, they're they're complex neighborhoods. They're not slums as a lot of people categorize them. They're um home to millions of Rio citizens. todromo is one of the smallest ones. But it's a you know it's a it was a place that a lot of people wanted to remain and, and weren't allowed to. And the, the thing is is while it's gotten a lot of attention, this isn't a unique situation in Brazil. It happens at almost every Olympics.
1: And the would you would you go far so far as to say that the the olympics almost intentionally exists to do this to poor neighborhoods because at, at a certain point when you when you when you do it again and again and again you see the same kind of economic impact you're having if you don't arrest
2: and Jason Turkis wrote a story about this for like the village voice. Right. In 19- yeah. When, it, when it happened in Atlanta. Yeah.
5: And, and that's what, you know, we went back again and looked at Atlanta. I, the researchers that I've talked to, the people who follow this activist academics, which is funny because a lot of the academics who study the Olympics tend to turn into major Olympic critics, if not activists <laughs> against them. Um, but, it's you know, they'll say that the, the process is fairly similar. There's there's wrinkles in each city based on the local context but the process tends to follow the a similar path and it's it's hard when you look at the last 7 or 8 olympics uh, particularly the summer versions to say that it it isn't at least a somewhat deliberate product of the games rather than a kind of unfortunate you know oh this community got in the way and and we had to do you know redevelopment to host this major event it it When you look at who who benefits, which are developers and, you know, politicians who those developers prefer and and the international sporting world. And you look at who is affected, which is almost always the urban poor. Yeah. And it happens seven, eight, ten times in a row. Does seem you connect it, the dots? <laughs> the sun does rise
2: <laughs> this morning. I think the sun's going to rise again the next morning. I can't prove it. <laughs> right, <laughs> it seems likely.
1: Is all of sports, professional sports, just now becoming like a really gross economic boondoggle? Because here. In in America, we see uh, people get taken for a ride by professional sports organizations all the time. Uh, in Atlanta, they've built a new baseball stadium, and it was sort of like jacked around, jacked over the people who lived in Atlanta. There's a boondoggle unfolding in Arlington, Texas, right now with the new Texas Ranger Stadium. Their current stadium is only 22 years old. It was built to be like this grand, old-fashioned style ballpark. Mm-hmm. People still love going there, uh, and now they want to build a new stadium uh, and, and completely, with a completely different modern type theme. And I believe that the way the fin- the way the financing really looks when you when you when you cut down on the fine print is that area taxpayers are going to be on the hook for like some eighty percent of the cost it's of the always stadium.
5: the way that works, they right? Be- and it's the same with the Olympics. You know, the Olympics come. You, the reason that Boston ultimately rejected the Olympics is because they make you sign a, a a provision that's called a taxpayer guarantee, where you step in to cover the cost if private financing or Olympic-related revenues fall short. And, you know, and that's the thing. That's, that's never happened. And, overruns and, and that's the, Olympics. the thing is, you're, you, what, you know, I talked to this one researcher who studied the games in Sydney and um, Vancouver, and she basically said, look, this is taxpayer-financed boondoggle that that also when you get out of the theory element of it you know when you get out of the it doesn't make up its cost this is bad for your city's economy when you step away from Mm -hmm. kind of the the academic paper economics it has a very obvious negative effect on poor people i mean and a
2: taxpayers are effectively paying money to kick poor people out of their homes so that rich people can watch games on tv
5: for two weeks (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is, but if you look at these communities, they're all almost this, they're they they're different because they're in different countries and different cities, mm-hmm. but they share very similar uh, aspects that that make them kind of ripe for this. You, you look in Atlanta, the community, the, the major housing project that was torn down to make way for the games was wedged between Georgia Tech and downtown Atlanta, where they built the Olympic Park in Rio. It's. Wedge between a major highway and where they're building all the Olympic venues across a lagoon from one of the fastest growing, wealthiest areas of Rio. They they're kind of these small, isolated communities. This happened in London, too. Yeah. And they're places that developers and politicians uh, have targeted for removal before have not really been able to get that done because the political will isn't necessarily there. And then all of a sudden the Olympics come to town
3: and we
5: got to get this done yeah. or in Atlanta it's, is this really what you want in the international tourist community and all these athletes to see? And so, you know, one a, a researcher from Georgia tech who, who studied the effects of the Olympics in Atlanta told me, quote, the Olympics provided the cover for the destruction of these neighborhoods.
1: Basically. Yeah.
5: And you know, it's, it's, Eventually I think we've you know, we we've had so many talks, there's so much discussion now about the cost of the games. And that's good because the they, they've it's spiraled out of control. But the effects of those costs also have to be looked at. What we're doing with that right. money, what right. that
2: money is doing. It's not just the taxpayers are poning up money, is that they're right. actively doing harm to these communities.
3: Right.
1: It is true that the promise, the the games make a lot of outlandish promises. I know that there have been people here in Washington D.C. who have courted the Olympic Games, and they've tried to sell it to a skeptical community as this is how you get your metro improvements, this is how you get your commute improvements, and I've always said. If we're all in agreement that these things need improved... Just do what them. What the fuck do we need an Olympics <laughs> Just to, do them. to do it for? Right. Well, all an Olympics well, is going to do is, they, is hit us with staggering cost right. overruns that will prevent us from solving these problems that they don't solve. And,
5: and Rio's a great example of this because you know, they, they had the World Cup and the Olympics back-to-back. It came with billions of infrastructure promises. Well, when the World Cup came, there were all these delays in construction on the venues. Well, you can't have a World Cup without the stadiums. So if you're down to you know, a year to finish everything you need for the World Cup, you're not going to finish the infrastructure. You're not going to finish the the new roads and the new bus lanes and the new metro lines. You're going to finish the stadiums. And then they have an Olympics two years later. Well, now they've got to get all that done. You know, So we're seeing, they've done some of it, you know, but again, the question is, why, why did you need an Olympics to do that? And it's interesting that you brought up D.C. because if you actually look at what the people who wanted to bring the Olympics to D.C. said, it was... We're going to, these are communities where they were going to put the games, which is in the southeast Mm -hmm. part of the city along the Anacostia River. We are, these are communities that need our redevelopment resources. These are the communities that need our help. And it's like, but if you look at all the past Olympics, you're making the communities nicer. The buildings look great. Yeah. Yeah. But the people who were there before the games are not the same people who are there after the games. No, so right. you did them all out. You <laughs> didn't improve their lives.
1: Yeah, you're just yeah.
5: sending everybody to PG County. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Has there been an Olympics that have gotten this right? Whew. I know that's a tough question.
5: Uh you know, I think the one that the one that through the research Barcelona didn't do as many kind of forcible evictions. They, I, d- I don't think Barcelona actually did any forcible evictions. But there was there were still some like post Olympic gentrification effects. How you know, did Barcelona
1: manage to not? Barcelona
5: didn't build that much. They kind of used it as a. They kind of, from my understanding, put it in an area town that was that hadn't wasn't really developed, but also wasn't really home to very many people. And it's also an old city with actual cool landmarks that you don't want to
2: destroy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know,
2: it's DC, but, whatever.
1: Nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it is it is really sad that this is uh, like always the backdrop against these Olympics because, of course, we all we, we love watching. I love watching. You know the competition, and I, I grow to like some of the athletes, and the athletes become sort of complicit in in this kind of in this kind of mess.
2: Um, yeah, but you know, the Washington Post had an interesting story over the past week pointing out that the athletes often don't really get paid very well for this. I mean, mm-hmm. they they are living yeah. in a lot of cases hand to mouth while the Olympic leaders and. Developers are getting rich.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's that. I mean, people can't appreciate it because I think we celebrate American athletes and we see them on Wheaties boxes and receiving in sponsorships. But a right. lot of these athletes who travel these games, they've broke. They're broke, and this is their one shot. And you know, they're not all going to win medals and become Nike heroes. Uh, uh, so it's really kind of like a bad stew for everyone involved. I
5: think it's just important to understand that these the, these things have a, a an effect every single time, and so. <clears throat> We've got to do better.
1: Really quick, why not have a fixed venue for the Olympics every for every for the in perpetuity? Stick them in Athens,
5: let them be there forever. Can you remove everything the IOC and developers and the people who finance these things like about the Olympics. The backsheesh. It's a great it's a great <laughs> thing to do in theory. It's just that nobody who runs this thing would want to do that.
1: All right. Well, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm always I'm always trying to <laughs> shut down cons instead of propping them up. That's just my way. All right, Travis. Uh... Uh, uh, you're going. You're going to Brazil in a week. I am. All right. Well, enjoy your time there. Do not catch Zika <laughs> if you can avoid it. Uh, don't drink the water. Uh, don't swim. Shit. We look forward to hearing <laughs> you talk about what it was like to be there. Cool. We will be right back. Thanks. Hello. We are back. Uh, two years ago. Uh, ISIS forces surrounded an area in Iraq called Mount Sinjar, uh, where they laid siege to a unique group of people within the Kurdistan region of Iraq called the Yazidis. Uh, This was a flashpoint moment, both publicly in the conflict with ISIS. Uh, Rescuing the Yazidis became the first major task of uh, the Obama administration when they decided to get involved in this conflict. Two years on, uh, we're looking at a situation in which Kurdistan appears—sorry, not Kurdistan, but uh, ISIS appears to be in retreat, but still quite entrenched in power. We are joined now to talk about uh, the time period and what we're looking at now, two years after uh, the world first decided— that this was a serious conflict that needed to be taken taken seriously. Uh, Akbar Ahmed, three weeks in a row. Hi. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. uh, To talk about foreign policy. We're very lucky to have you. We're also extremely fortunate to have on the line by phone, uh, uh, Bayan Sami Abdurrahman. She is Kurdistan's foreign minister to the United States. Uh, Bayan, thank you for joining us.
6: You're welcome, but you just promoted me. I'm not foreign minister. I'm the representative.
1: (laughs) Thank you for joining us. And I wanted to just begin by asking uh, you to um, set the stage for us two years ago uh, with what what happened in Mount Sinjar. And and who are the Yazidis as an ethnic population? Because this is a very fascinating uh, subgroup living within uh, Iraq's borders.
6: What happened was uh, that in August two thousand fourteen on August the third ISIS attacked Sinjar. Sinjar is a very large district. It's actually all of the districts is about the size of Lebanon. But within that district there are villages, there are there's the town of Sinjar itself and there is Mount Sinjar, which is a very long mountain. It's not a mountain with a peak. It's kind of a very long undulating mountain. The Yazidis are Kurds ethnically, but their religion, unlike most Kurds, is not Muslim. Uh, The Yazidis are uh, Yazidi, that is the name of their faith. Um, It predates Islam, uh, but also uh, takes bits and pieces from Islam as well. Uh, For us uh, as a community in Kurdistan, the Yazidis are respected and they're part of our community their holy books and so on are written in the Kurdish language. So the Yazidis um, are, are largely in the Sinjar area of Iraq. And what happened was that in August 2014, ISIS attacked the Yazidis. Now, when we say ISIS, we mean not just the foreign fighters, we mean also locals. And this is what's heartbreaking for the Yazidis. Many of their Arab neighbors, Neighbors that they had lived with for years turned against them, raped their daughters, beheaded their sons, enslaved women and children. And even today, more than 3,200 Yazidi women and girls are sexually enslaved by ISIS. So ISIS came in these sort of mad kamikaze suicide missions on tanks that they had just captured in Mosul, Humvees, uh, heavy weapons and used them to terrorize the community, and drove hundreds of thousands of them to Mount Sinjar, and that is where they took refuge. Others who couldn't escape were massacred. We know there are many, many mass graves. Many have been discovered, but there are others that we can see from satellite imagery. The village of Kojo, the entire village, has either been wiped out by that, I mean, killed, or they have fled, uh, and very, very few survivors exist from that village. So this is what happened in August 2014. Fortunately, and we are forever grateful to President Obama, fortunately, the United States decided to order airstrikes against ISIS around August the 7th or 8th. And around that time, the airstrikes began against ISIS, pushing them back. The U.S., other countries, and Iraqi Air Force as well, began airlifts and airdrops of food and aid to the Yazidis who were stranded on Mount Sinjar. Mount Sinjar became a safe haven for the Yazidis, but also a kind of a, a valley of death, if I can call it that, because people were trapped there in the August heat, and this is sweltering heat. Women, and particularly children and the elderly, children and the elderly died on Mount Sinjar because there was no food, no water. They couldn't get down off the mountain. They were trapped there. So this is what happened in August 2014, and we, as in the Kurdistan regional government, but also the people of Kurdistan, and especially the Yazidi community, are marking this black anniversary and we're calling for justice, we are asking that those perpetrators of this genocide against the Yazidis and other minorities, the Christians in Iraq, other minorities as well, these criminals should be brought to justice.
7: And Bayan, could you update us on the current status now of Yazidi refugees, people who fled that region within the Kurdistan regional government. Where are they? Where are the camps? How is rehabilitation for them going? And I know Kurdistan is involved with trying to get some of these Yazidi women back from Daesh, the ones who have been sexually enslaved. What's going on with those efforts? What are the successes? What are the challenges?
6: Well, what we're trying to do is we are really lobbying governments around the world, uh, starting with the United States, but also Britain, France, uh, other countries were lobbying them to convince them that there should be a kind of a, uh, an investigative commission that will investigate the crimes of Daesh, ISIS, will keep that evidence so that one day there can be a prosecution. Now, that prosecution could be through the International Criminal Court, the ICC, or maybe a, a new kind of special international tribunal. But also we can at the same time have local justice. We can also have mm-hmm. courts in Kurdistan, in Iraq, try the thousands of people. It's not just a handful. It's thousands of people, many of them locals, who have raped, who have looted, who have pillaged, who are even today holding people slaves, enslaved in their own homes. So we're looking for justice and accountability on two fronts. One is local, but also for the leaders of Daesh, the leaders of ISIS, to be tried at a global level because the crimes that they've committed are of such magna- magnitude that they warrant an international response.
1: Kurdistan uh, has obviously had a little, a lot of success in repelling ISIS, uh, but it, uh, but as a sort of like quasi- nation state. it occupies a very sort of tense position in the world uh, where there's you know rivalries between the Turks to the north uh, and and, and, uh, and Sunni and Shia populations in Iraq. Um, do you believe that Kurdistan uh, can continue to play a major role against Isis while sort of tripping through all the wires of these international relationships?
6: Well, I think we, by necessity, have become expert at negotiating these tripwires <laughs> that you described. Yeah. Um, because we, we just have to. We are uh, in a very tough neighborhood. We have neighbors like Iran, like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia. Um, Syria is also on the border with Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan. So this is the neighborhood that we're in. Iran is not just a regional player, it's an international player. Turkey has the second largest army in NATO after the United States. So we have to navigate these very rough, choppy waters all the time. And through necessity, we have developed uh, ways and means of doing this. We do our best to maintain a very good relationship with Iran to maintain a good relationship with Turkey. These relationships have a different character. With Turkey, the relationship is much more based around the economy. Uh, we export oil through Turkey, and one day we hope to export gas to Turkey. With Iran, our relationship is much more nuanced, it's much more diplomatic, and uh, we try to have what we consider to be a correct uh, relationship with Iran. So this is the the neighborhood that we're in, but it's the fact that all of those neighbors and the United States, Europe, they need Kurdistan to fight Mm. Daesh. They need the Peshmerga. It's been acknowledged um, by many leaders, including Secretary Carter, that the Peshmerga are the most effective ground force against Daesh. And I have to say that it's been at great sacrifice. Yeah. More than 1,500 Peshmerga have been killed, and more than 8,000 mo- wounded.
1: How would you? Obviously, we're marking a very black anniversary. How would you say things have proceeded in the two years since? Uh, here in America, our government tells us constantly that ISIS is in retreat. That there's no quick fixes, of course and that it's not going to be something that's uh, dealt with overnight. But we get an optimistic view that they're in retreat, they've lost territory, uh, that the situation is still very tense in Syria because of the ongoing uh, internecine conflicts there with the Assad regime. Uh, but we're, 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 we're given a sort of like hopeful and quasi-optimistic view of that conflict. As someone who is more familiar with the situation at ground level, How would you describe it?
6: I think that actually that assessment is correct. We have defeated Daesh on many fronts um, militarily. So uh, right now the Peshmerga still have a 1,000-kilometer front line against ISIS, about 600-kilometer front line. But whenever the Peshmerga have gained ground, whenever we've taken ground, we've been able to hold it. Of course, ISIS continually attacks, but we have been able to hold the ground. And increasingly, we're seeing the Iraqi security forces do the same. At the beginning, the Iraqi security forces were disastrous, catastrophic. Uh, When Daesh entered Mosul in June 2014, the Iraqi forces abandoned everything and handed over helicopters, tanks, Humvees, heavy weapons to ISIS. But since then, and particularly more recently, we've seen the Iraqi security forces, for example, take Fallujah back and hold it. And so I think it is correct to say that ISIS is on the retreat. Um, In Syria, they are also being surrounded. With regards to Iraq, we and the Iraqi forces and the coalition forces, we are together increasingly surrounding Mosul so that... We're preparing the ground for the day that Mosul can be liberated. Where I think we and the international coalition need to do much, much more is actually on the humanitarian front. The mm. war with ISIS has created a humanitarian crisis in Iraq that the United Nations designates to be level three. Level three means this is life and death, everybody mobilized. Well, there has been a level three crisis for two years. Yeah. It's unsustainable. And those very Yazidis and Christians that I was talking about who two years ago had to flee their home, flee for their life, two years later they're still living in camps. The lucky ones are living in camps. The others are living, some of them in the roadside, some in half-finished buildings. Others who maybe be better off have been able to rent Apartments and share apartments. Sometimes you're getting four or five families sharing a two bedroom apartment because that's the only way they can manage. And the United Nations is struggling to raise money for the humanitarian crisis in Iraq. So I would say, militarily, we are getting there. But on the humanitarian front, the catastrophe is there and it's a ticking time bomb. Why? Because of the young generation. We have yet another generation of young Iraqis, whether they're Christian, Yazidi Kurds, Turkmen, Shia, Sunni. We have another generation whose education is almost zero. We have another generation who are growing up in this kind of marginalized, vulnerable environment. And what does that tell us about the future of Iraq?
7: Yeah, just... A final question on the Yazidi community's specific kind of resettlement two years on from this genocide. You talked, Bayan, about international justice. What other needs are we hearing that are going unmet from Yazidi communities? I mean, how much is, are people talking about wanting to move back to ancient ancestral lands or homes? Or is there still fear of, of going back even if ISIS is removed? What's going on with the community and, and their future specifically?
6: Well, you've really hit the nail on the head. The community does want to go back. Nobody wants to live in this hand-to-mouth situation uh, as a displaced person. Uh, And being displaced is the same as being a refugee in that you've lost absolutely everything. It's just that the terminology is different because refugees and displaced people have a different legal status. So... Absolutely, people want to go back home. They want to go back to their farmlands. They want to go back to their villages. If they're a teacher, they want to go back to their job. If they're a doctor, they want to go back to their hospital and serve their community again. But with the destruction of Sinjar, it's impossible. Sinjar is absolutely rubble. It's mm. you know, if you if you can imagine, uh, you know, Berlin or or Germany after the immediate ceasefire of the Second World War, where everything was just rubble. Mm. This is what Sinjar looks like. So the people can't go back because we don't even have basic services like water and electricity and, you know, refuse collection or so on, wastewater collection. We don't have anything like that. So people want to go back, but they can't go back because of the destruction, and they also can't go back because... Nobody feels that it's safe right now. And this is why we need to finish the job and liberate Mosul and drive ISIS out of Iraq.
1: All right. Well, I uh, want to thank you for joining us uh, on the show today. And, and, and uh, please, please feel free to come back on. We love talking uh, about this stuff, and we like to bring uh, this kind of news to our listeners. It's very unique. Thank you very much. And thank you, And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by journalist and author Mark Lamont Hill, the Kurdistan Regional Government's representative to the United States Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, as well as Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.